can have your Bibles handy. Uh, not going to be in Genesis today. Decided to go in a little bit of a different direction this morning. Today is a special day at Legacy Baptist Church because after the morning service, we have the pleasure of witnessing public profession of faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. And it has been a while since I have taken the time in service to think about what baptism is, why it is important, and what the Bible says about it together. And so I'd like to do that today, and I'd like to do so this morning by answering four questions. And I'm just going to jump into it because um, I do have a lot to cover this morning. And the four questions we're going to ask this morning are this. One, what is water baptism? Two, biblically, what does water baptism represent? Three, biblically, why do we water baptize? And then four, why, excuse me, how should we water baptize? And these are the four questions that we're going to answer today. Questions which will help us understand what we believe, why we believe what we believe, and, and why we find it to be important at all. So we begin with this first question this morning. What is water baptism biblically? Now the concept of baptism by being immersed in water, which is the idea, has a very long and a storied past. It did not begin uh, with the church. It did not begin with the early church. It is something that was done well before the early church in Jewish customs, uh, and it has been done in many different um, cultures throughout the world. When the New Testament opens, however, we are quickly introduced to a man named John, and we oftentimes call him John the Baptist. He was not called John the Baptist because uh, he was uh, affiliated with the denomination by any means. Um, he was called John the Baptist, more, more, more or less John the Baptizer was the idea there because his ministry was defined by the concept of a baptism unto repentance. And we find as we open the New Testament that this man named John is baptizing in the wilderness of Judea. And of of this we read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The same and the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey. The idea there is that he came in the vein of the Old Testament prototypical prophet, in the vein of Elijah, which of course would become a theme. And as Isaiah prophesied of his coming, he comes in this manner that reflects uh, the same uh, sort of posturing as the Old Testament prophet. Verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So the scriptures tell us that John came with a message, and that message was, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as he gave this message, he was also baptizing those who, through confession of their sins, reflected an alignment with the message that John was preaching. So they would confess their sins. That would be a reflection of the fact that they were in this place of repentance, in this place where they were aligning themselves with the message of God. And then as they aligned themselves, they gave a visible manifestation of that alignment by then submitting themselves to John's baptism. And we are careful to understand the relationship between the message of repentance and the action here being taken of John with water baptism. The message was one of preparation. 
This was a preparation for Messiah. It was an aligning of one's heart so that when Messiah came, they would be ready to receive him. That the nation would be actively preparing themselves for this arrival. And their baptism was to show that they were on board in alignment with John's message. That they agreed with John's message. John was calling them to get their lives in order so that they would be ready when their Messiah appeared because he was coming soon. So when the people came forward to be baptized, they were publicly declaring their faith in this message and their determination that they would do, thus align, with the message of the Messiah who was to come. It is also very important to mention that not everyone who sought to be baptized was given the privilege. And this is interesting as well. Notice as we continue in verses 7 through 9. But when he, that would be John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath, that, uh, from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham." When the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they sought to be a part of what John was doing, of the message of John, John first called them a generation of vipers. He actually rejected their posturing. And he told them that if they wanted to be a part, to align themselves with this message, they had to first bring forth the fruit of repentance. In other words, the water baptism itself was not the alignment with John's message. The alignment with John's message was Rather, the repentance. And that baptism was a visible or a public declaration of that alignment. And John says, you can't come down here and publicly declare that you're aligned when you're not actually aligned. When in fruit, you deny, you're not bringing forth the fruit of repentance. When you are denying him in person, you can't then posture to him in action. When the fruit of genuine faith was evidenced, at that point, of course, they could align themselves with that message, publicly associate themselves with it through baptism. Now then, as we continue, and, and we, we're going to skip a couple of verses here, we find ourselves in Matthew 3, verse 13. And the next interesting thing about this baptism of John, as we seek to simply understand the character of baptism itself, first we saw that the character of baptism was that it was a public or a visible manifestation of something that was happening that had already happened in the heart. That these men had already repented, they had already recognized Messiah is coming, they had already aligned themselves with John's message that, that Messiah was coming, and then their baptism was a public manifestation of that. That those who did not repent, who did not align themselves with the message, were not welcomed to be baptized because that public profession was for those who were aligned, right? Who had chosen to align themselves with the message. Now we see a third characteristic, and this comes in the fact that Jesus himself was also baptized, and this is important. If we needed any other help for us to understand that the baptism itself was not intended to be a, uh, any sort of spiritually efficacious idea, we find that proof in the fact that Jesus submitted to it as well. So we read in Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. 
that he suffered him. In other words, he baptized Jesus. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And it continues from there. So Jesus comes to John, and he comes to be baptized as well. And John says, this doesn't really make sense. I should be baptized of you, right? You are the Messiah. You're the one that is to come, and I'm just your forerunner. I'm just your herald. Why do you want to be baptized of me? And this tells us, it gives us an insight into what the baptism was about. The baptism was an alignment with the message of John. So for the people of Jerusalem and Judea to align with the message of John, they had to do, as John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Jesus is the kingdom of heaven, right? He is the one who is to come. And in that he is the one, he didn't need to repent, But he still wanted to show, he wanted to make a public demonstration, and a very important one, that he is in agreement with John's message. That John's message is true, and he is in alignment with it. So what did he do? He didn't have to be be cleansed of any sin. He didn't need repentance. That's not what water baptism did for anyone. Water baptism was a visible manifestation of alignment with the message. And Jesus was aligned with the message. And he said, it's important for me, suffer it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. It is important for me to show the world that I am aligned with your message, John. You need to baptize me. And so John baptizes him. He wasn't seeking baptism to get some sort of spiritual experience or spiritual power, some sort of second blessing. He didn't need to repent of his sin, for he was not a sinner. We know that. Jesus is God in flesh. He never once sinned. Yet he submitted himself to the baptism of John because, like all others that had done so, he was in agreement with John's message and sought publicly to identify himself with the message that John was preaching. Now, as we transition to the ministry of Jesus Christ, we find Jesus preaching the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And men and women being baptized in agreement with Jesus' message in the same way that they had been baptized in agreement with John's message. Then we find in in John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. And then it goes on. But what we find here in this little snippet, and I apologize, I'm pulling a lot of snippets here and there's not a lot of context to this. I'll invite you to go back and to look into the context uh, later and and to to, uh, glean a little bit more from that, if, if you will. But we find that Jesus is baptized of John. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, uh, after his baptism, of course, he goes off in the wilderness. He's tempted of the devil for 40 days. And then he uh, comes back uh, at the end of the 40 days he's tempted, after 40 days of prayer and fasting. Then he comes back. He starts with the marriage of Cana and Galilee. And then his ministry is off and running. And he is now baptizing people in his message, right? They're aligning with his message. But we notice that it was not actually Jesus that was baptizing, but his disciples that were baptizing in his name. And, and as Jesus started up his message, the, the message of John the Baptist was... Of course, he was imprisoned, uh, so he didn't have much of an opportunity anymore. But his, his role had wound down. He was the herald of Messiah until Messiah appeared. Messiah has now appeared. He has declared himself. He has begun his ministry. And now the ministry transitions to Jesus. So men would be baptized as followers of Jesus' message. Of course, John 4, 2, telling us Jesus himself baptized no man. And with this, we have considered really all that we find in the Gospels concerning baptism. 
John's baptism, Jesus' baptism, this is all the Gospels really have to say in this transition period between the concept, the Old Testament Jewish concept of baptizing in order to align oneself with a message. They would baptize the proselytes that would be proselytized into, in, into uh, Orthodox Judaism. Uh, they, would, they would baptize for, for, for a number of different reasons related to association with a message. And now we see it in, in the world of Christ, starting with John the Baptist, then coming to Jesus in the Gospels. Then we transition into the church age. We transition into the, the, the book of Acts and following. Following Pentecost, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when generally we believe that the church would have begun, we find baptism becomes a very integral part of the church of Jesus Christ. Following the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a message And in that message, he declares the signs and the wonders which they saw on that day were intended to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was Messiah and that God was now working through Jesus' followers. And in light of this, what would we expect? But that there would be an expectation of baptism. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 say this. Now, when they heard this, that would be the crowds that were listening to Peter's preaching, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now there are some important things to note about this. Just like with John's baptism, we see a distinction made between the heart alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ, called here repentance, which Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, a repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It is the idea of turning away from anything and everything that you might be trusting in to earn favor with God or to get yourself right with God and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone to be your salvation, to be your, um, to be your hope of, of heaven. And so we see a distinction between that call to repentance and then this water baptism. The distinction, though found in in the English, is even more pronounced in the original language. The text here is translated literally, and the meaning of the text is, is, is correct. But in the Greek, the phrase would be understood more or less like this. Repent ye all, and each one who repents be baptized. And so there is that, that, that clear distinction between the act of aligning one's heart and then the visible or public declaration of that alignment through baptism. And so as we ask the question then, what is baptism? We find that as the custom becomes established in the New Testament church, it maintains the purpose that it has always historically maintained and been reflected in cultures, which is, it's never presented in the scripture as being a requirement for salvation. It's never presented in the scripture as granting some sort of second blessing or some sort of unique spiritual power or, or that in it is actually the washing away of your sins through the water, the physical water. But much to the contrary, it is the idea of a, heart, a public profession of what has already happened in my heart a previous heart alignment with a message in the Christian church, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more passage I want us to consider before we move on past this point, and that's in 1 Peter 3. 
Now, in 1 Peter 3, Peter presents the events surrounding Noah and the worldwide flood, and he presents it as a picture of salvation by grace through faith. If you recall, we talked about that a little bit last week. One of the reasons why I believe that Nephilim theory is so uh, is potentially even insidious to the gospel is because it paints Noah's Ark as uh, the best among us, as the, 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 the chosen few, those who have, have effectively saved themselves through their own capacity to keep themselves pure, as being the ones that got on the ark, whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ says that is not the case at all. And Peter invokes this. We're going to talk more about this verse in the coming weeks in our Genesis series as we get more into the actual substance of the flood narrative in Genesis 8, 7, 8, 9, uh, coming up here soon. But as it relates to baptism, Peter says this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached into the spirits in prison. We talked about that last week, so we don't need to go back into that, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Notice this, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So Peter here says that the ark was a figure. The ark was a figure of salvation and of the baptism which now saves us. And then as he says that, he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Notice here, there will be some that will will say through this verse, see, you need to be baptized to be saved. But that's not what Peter says. What Peter is saying here is that it is not the act of actually being dunked in water that saves you, but it is the answer of the good conscience toward God that has saved you. Notice here that he says that they were saved by water, Peter says. Noah and his family were saved by water. But what was it that actually saved them? What was the baptism that, into which they were baptized? Noah didn't end up in the water. As a matter of fact, that was one of the very unique things about Noah and his family among the rest of the world, is they did not end up in the water. They were saved by getting into the ark. The baptism that they passed through was the baptism of stepping into the ark. That was the answer of a good conscience toward God. And then, of course, the waters and the floods came. So in the relation to the baptism of which he speaks, Peter says it is not the submersion of oneself in the water that saves you, but what happens with the good conscience toward God. When you align yourself with the message of the gospel and can answer toward God in good conscience, not that you're sinless, because none of us is sinless, not that you do everything right, because none of us does everything right, not that you have it all figured out, because we're all working through that together. That's why we spend a bunch of time here every Sunday. But because we know who is our Redeemer, we have confessed him to be our Redeemer, and that there is no name under heaven given among men but Jesus Christ, whereby we must be saved. Okay, so what is water baptism? It is a public profession of an alignment, of a heart alignment with a message. In the case of the Christian church, it is particularly the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross to save.
our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. We'll come to that again in a little bit. We move on then to our second question as we hasten through here. Biblically, what does water baptism represent? Well, it's intended, as we said, to be a public display of alignment with the message of the gospel. But more specifically, water baptism represents a twofold idea. First, it's the recognition what happened, it's representation, a metaphor of what happened at the moment you put your faith in Christ. And then second, it is a, a pronouncement of a determination. We sang this morning, who is on the Lord's side? The idea there, a determination by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. That announcement, that pronouncement that says, the Lord is on my side. He sent his son to die on the cross for me, and I am now on his side. I receive that. I accept that. Now, this doesn't mean that you're vowing to never sin again, right? We've been studying that in 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're going to sin. But it does mean that you are publicly committing yourself to living your life according to the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. You're on his side. You're a follower of Christ. And we learn of this idea particularly, this metaphor, in Romans chapter 6. So this is actually what I'm going to quote today when we do the baptism. It's it's what, what I quote every time. And the reason why I quote it is because this is the metaphor. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, tells us this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now this here is not talking about water baptism. This is talking about what we call Holy Spirit baptism. This is what happens at the moment that you put your faith in Christ whereby God gives you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you, breaks the chains of sin, uh, and, and, and points your heart and your mind in a different direction, namely to follow Christ. We'll talk about spirit baptism at another time. It's not uh, what we're going to get into today. But the, the, the essence of what happens when a person accepts Christ, that the Spirit of God uh, um, is in, in, indwells him and breaks the chains of sin, this is represented in the nature of baptism. We are, we're buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, to walk a different path as a new creation, dead to sin, and alive unto Christ. Water baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. Right? Buried with him, you go under the water. Of course, we don't actually bury you because that would be complicated. And then symbol of raising you to walk in newness of life. Right? There is a resurrection. And this has always been the case, even outside of the church. Even in other cultures, the idea of baptism has been whatever you were doing before, you're dead to it and you're alive to something new. That's the idea. That's the symbolic concept. That's the metaphor. Dead to the old, alive to the new. And this is the same metaphor, except it has tremendous teeth in the Christian faith. Why? Because our Savior was buried. And the Bible tells us that when he was buried... That we, when we accept Christ as our Savior, are buried with Him. That He takes our transgressions, He nails them to Christ's cross, 
that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us is nailed to the cross and that we are released, forgiven, set free from our sin. And that's the metaphor. When you're placed under the water, you're demonstrating faith, your faith, your public declaration of faith, first, in Jesus' death and resurrection, and second, that you have now died to self, to sin, to any capacity you have to save yourself. And when you come out of that water, you're demonstrating faith in your new life in Christ, the future resurrection unto eternal life. So baptism is a metaphor, a physical representation of a spiritual reality that now defines your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. That brings us to our third question. First, what is water baptism? Water baptism uh, is a public alignment declaration uh, with a message. What does water baptism represent in the Christian church? It represents not uh, both Christ's burial and resurrection, his death, his burial, his resurrection, as well as our metaphorical death and resurrection with him. As when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are judicially named as righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So God sees me as having died with Christ and risen with him. Thus, I am declared righteous under his blood. Question number three, why do we water baptize? Well, we've already in part considered a reason why, right? Back in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached his sermon and he called upon people who were convicted to repent and to be baptized. Four verses later, we read this in verses 41 and 42 of Acts chapter 2. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So we see, of course, the idea of association. Why do we baptize? It's, it's a manner of association. But here we see a concept of baptism being very closely linked to adding people to the local church. In fact, in the early church, the concept of baptism and the church assembly was so closely linked that it was customary to consider baptism as one's effective inauguration into the church body. That when you were baptized, you were officially inaugurated into the fellowship of believers. Now, in today's Christian world, we see various applications of this concept, and they vary from church to church, from polity to polity. Some churches uh, do uh, believer baptism as membership, so that when a person uh, is baptized, uh, submits to believer's baptiz baptism, they are automatically entered into effectively the membership of the church, so that anyone who gets baptized is automatically a member, and uh, that's how some churches do it. Uh, other churches, including ours, ask for baptism, biblical believer's baptism, as a condition of church membership, though it's not synonymous with church membership. So anyone who wants to become a member of the church, we ask that you have a profession of faith and that you have a testimony of baptism. And then you can start going through the process of becoming a member, but we separate those, namely uh, because of the unique nature of the church in the Western world, the public nature of the church, the fact that, that, that uh, membership is the means in our church by which we protect the church spiritually. Uh, and so just the fact that a person has accepted Christ is not necessarily um, enough, right, they, to, for, for them to be able to step into all of the responsibilities that come with preserving the integrity of the church. And that's where we, we are right now because of the, the various model that we've chosen. 
Some churches, of course, hold to various other views as it relates to this requiring biblical baptism, um, maybe for membership, but not for communion. We ask for biblical baptism as it relates to communion as well. Uh, so lots of different ways that this can play out. But what we almost always see in Orthodox Christian circles is that biblical baptism plays an important role in validating among the church a believer's choice to commit himself to Christ. And so it's an important step in being in the fellowship of the local church body. So then, why do we baptize? Well, first, it's that example of the early church whereby we find fellowship one with Another, the early church baptized, this tradition and this ordinance has been passed down through the generations, connecting us to one another through this declaration by which we declare our desire to follow Christ and thus we unite in fellowship one with another. But our motivation is in fact deeper still than that. We understand throughout the scriptures that salvation from sin requires no positive action in ourselves, right? To be saved from one's sin does not require baptism. The Bible nowhere states that you must be baptized in order to be saved from your sins. That is something that we do not find within the, the thread of teaching as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, much less, uh, much to the contrary. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We already considered in Peter the idea that baptism, that salvation was the answer of a good conscience toward God, not the washing away of the filth of the flesh. In the words of James 2.18, that was our memory verse for last month, right? Uh, There is a natural work which is produced in the life of one who has accepted Christ as their Savior, but that... And these works justify our faith, but that faith alone is the means by which we come to a saving knowledge of Christ. To this end, we also recognize the function of baptism as a public statement of association. Now, this is that one that goes back to the initial purpose. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says this, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, an inherent part of being a true believer is that you are not ashamed to confess Christ, to associate yourself with Jesus Christ and with his word. When Paul gives this idea of confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus, he's not explicitly saying that if the words do not come out of your mouth in this manner, that you are not a believer. If you don't verbally confess the moment that you receive the gospel, then it's not valid. He's not saying that. Obviously, uh, that that would be a a hyper-literal translation, which would not comport with what we know of the gospel, what we know of people, and how they've accepted Christ as their Savior, and certainly not uh, make sense as it relates to Uh, the various conditions upon which one may not have a means by which to confess with their mouth. But what we do find is a principle. And the principle is that an inherent part of being true, a true follower of Jesus Christ, is that you are not ashamed of the gospel. That a true follower of Jesus Christ will not be ashamed to say that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And baptism, by custom, by tradition, by ordinance, and by command, as we'll see in a little bit, is the way that the Christian church has chosen to, if you will, affirm that public profession. You want to prove to me that you have a public profession in Jesus Christ? You want to prove to me that you believe? Pronounce it openly, publicly, for all the world to see that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. How? How? Well, 
let's, let's get you baptized, right? That's, that's what the church has chosen. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come into his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So on the authority of God's word, it does not work for us to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet to still pronounce faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we aren't willing to publicly claim Christ, then there's very little that commends your life to the idea that you have chosen to follow Christ. If in works you deny him, then what possible confidence can the church have that you are a follower of his? Now, please keep this in context. We've already stated and seen biblically that you do not need to be baptized in order to be saved and on your way to heaven. The most simple example of this is the thief on the cross, right? Didn't have time to get baptized. But Jesus still said, today you'll be with me in paradise. If a person doesn't get baptized, this does not inherently prove that they're ashamed of the gospel or afraid to associate with Christ, particularly in the West, where baptism... um, doesn't have a lot of weight anymore. We'll talk about that in a moment. Likewise, especially in our culture, we cannot inherently say that every person who has been baptized is in fact a believer. We in the Western world have lost a tremendous amount of the significance of publicly associating ourselves with Jesus Christ through baptism. Today, if um, you were to go around telling people that you've been baptized in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you've been baptized in, 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 in your uh, affirmation with alignment to the gospel, and uh, you announce to your family or to your friends that you're getting baptized, um, when people find out that you have been baptized, if they see a baptism certificate on the wall or whatever it might be, uh, there is perhaps uh, a congratulations. Even if the people are atheists or don't really care about those things, they might say, well, good for you. Congratulations. Good luck with that. Um, the people that are believers will rejoice with you and be excited about that. But there is not a, a, a tremendous amount of weight that undergirds baptism in the Western world. And a part of that is because the Western world has been so Christianized uh, that baptism is a very, very common thing. However, this has not been the case throughout history. And even in much of the world today, this is not the case. When I speak to missionaries and learn of their cultures, even around the world today, it is not uncommon for them to tell me that they have no problem getting confessions of faith out of people. But that it is much more important, much more weighty, the moment that that person is willing to actually get baptized. Because once a person gets baptized, he is publicly renouncing his former faith and claiming a loyalty to the new faith. That in many cultures around the world, this is actually that point of decision that the culture sees. And this is the way it was in the early church. This is the way it was with the, the, the cultural distinctions between Judaism and Christianity. That for a person to say, I follow Jesus Christ is one thing, but the moment that he got into that water... His family and his employers and his culture said, this man has just denied us for this this other religious system. He has denied Judaism for Christianity. That's a big deal. And at that point, even still today, in many cultures around the world, that's where their family disowns them. That's where they lose their job. That's where they're kicked out of their tribe. That's That's where the persecution begins, is when they make the public association with Christ through 
baptism. And so that is the weight that historically has been carried into baptism. Now, our brother and sister in Christ today aren't going to necessarily feel that cultural weight as they submit themselves to baptism today. Probably no one in this room, with the exception of maybe a few people who have very, very um, deep ties to um, liturgical denominations uh, that, that either infant baptize, like the Catholics and the Lutherans, or to um, Latter-day Saints or, or Jehovah's Witness that, that have tremendously strong ties to a, a system, uh, a, a closed system. With the exception of, of some of those families, they're not going to feel necessarily that kind of a, a weight, a cultural weight of disassociation with the former and association with the, the new. But that is the weight by which Jesus would say things like what he says in Luke chapter 9. That is the weight that we see when those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost were baptized and added to the church. That was the weight that they were under. That was the weight of them saying as they were there for Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, right? That was the weight of them saying that this feast, that these things are actually pointing to Jesus Christ and we associate ourselves with the message of Jesus Christ in contradiction to the entire culture that we We've lived in for our entire lives. That tells us that Jesus Christ was a usurper and a false teacher. That was the weight of what they were doing on that day. And as we continue to walk through the book of Acts, if you walk through the book of Acts, when Paul is taking offerings for the church at Jerusalem, why was he doing that? Because they were under tremendous persecution. And they were under that tremendous persecution. And all throughout the Roman Empire, they were under tremendous persecution, primarily by whom? By the Jews, who were extremely hostile toward this Christian profession. And baptism was that point of decision. These men and women truly had to bear the cross of shame that Jesus warned us that we all need to be willing to bear. And as each one of us has submitted to baptism, and as our brother and sister in Christ submit today, that is the profession, that we will bear that cross. Now, that cross is not heavy in the United States right now. It might, might get heavier. It's not heavy right now. But that's the call. That's the association. And Jesus Christ himself tells us that that's the cost of following him. One final reason for, for baptism. Why? Do we water baptize? Well, it's the example of the early church, this idea, this association. It is a statement of association with Christ. And then finally, obedience. Simply obedience. Jesus' final commission, we call it the Great Commission, in Matthew 28 says this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. When Jesus commands us to teach, that word, that first teach there literally means to make disciples of all nations, to go into the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. He elaborates upon the idea of what it means to make a disciple in two ways. So the discipleship begins with a profession of faith. And then as, after that profession of faith, there are two things that then must happen. First, you baptize them. Second, you teach them to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded. And this is the commission. This is our call. Go find people who will believe. When they believe, baptize them and teach them to observe the things of Christ. It's simple. It's straightforward. And it's what Jesus commanded us to do.
So Jesus tells us to do it, and we're going to do it, right? Uh, it, 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 can, it can be that simple. It's okay for it to be that simple. Why water baptize? Because Jesus told us to. We're going to do what Jesus said. Okay, final question this morning. First, biblically, what is water baptism? Then biblically, what does water baptism represent? Third, biblically, why do we water baptize? Finally, how should we water baptize? And of course, this is another thing. I've already mentioned infant baptism today and the idea of, uh, of infant baptism and baptism by sprinkling. Uh, but we'll get there in just a moment. First, we baptize believers. First, we baptize believers. And this point is controversial in a heavily Lutheran and Catholic area such as ours. But biblically speaking, um, there is no precedent in the scripture for infant baptism. Infant baptism is what we call an extrapolation. So, what, and, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that if you've been infant baptized that you're tainted or corrupted or anything of the sort, but it is an extrapolation. And, that, and, and what I mean by that is this. In the early days of, of the Catholic Church, the, when, when the Catholic Church went from just being the, the church throughout the lands to Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Catholic, and there was this branch, and the Roman Catholic Church was beginning to dominate in the West, throughout that pr- process, one of the things that the church had settled on as doctrine is that the church had replaced Israel. Now, we do not believe that today. We believe that God still has a plan for Israel and the nation of Israel. But the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has historically believed that the nation of Israel is a cursed race, that they are a cursed people by God, that they rejected their Messiah, that they are done before God, and that because of that, they are the new Israel. The Roman Catholic Church is the new Israel. And as such, they extrapolated many of Israel's customs and traditions into their own Customs and traditions, hence the reason for the priests, hence the reason for the, the, the liturgies, hence the reason for all of those traditions, including infant baptism, which is at the point of christening, which would take place on the eighth day, the day where they would receive their Christian name and they would be ushered into Israel. Well, why baptism? Well, because the Bible explicitly says that circumcision isn't biblically necessary. So they couldn't continue to carry over circumcision. So they said, well, baptism is the new circumcision. So we baptize them on the eighth day instead of circumcising them on the eighth day. And then they get their Christian name and they are ushered into the Christian church. They are ushered into the fellowship of the covenant, which is, exa- which is the exact language that God used as it related to circumcision in the Old Testament, carried over into the New Testament into infant baptism. And so infant baptism was an extrapolated doctrine based upon the doctrinal propensities specifically and the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church as it related to the Roman Catholic Church being a replacement for Israel in God's plan. But nowhere in the Bible do we see this because nowhere in the Bible is this taught. It's extrapolated. Every instance of church baptism in the Bible indicates it took place on the condition that the person has first, first professed faith in Jesus Christ. And the prototypical um, example of this is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, beginning in verse 36, we read this as it relates to uh, Philip and this eunuch. I'll explain a little bit more in a moment. The Bible says, And as they went on their way, 
They came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So in Acts chapter 8, we see an account of a man named Philip. Philip was a deacon in the early church, and he speaks to an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading about the book of Isaiah on his way back to Ethiopia. And as he's reading the book of Isaiah, he doesn't understand it. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, how can I understand except someone explain it to me? So Philip got into the chariot with him and they began to talk through it. He was reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 being that great Old Testament prophetic passage of the suffering of Messiah. And at the end of Philip's gospel presentation, effectively through Isaiah 53, the eunuch believes it all. He hears it. He says, yes, I believe that Jesus is that one. He has come. This is true. And and he looks and he sees that there's some water on the side and he says, here is water. What should hinder me to be baptized? Is there any reason why I can't be baptized? And notice the qualification that Philip gave. The qualification was, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That's it. Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again? Do you believe this with all your heart? And and the, the eunuch's response was, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so they stopped the chariot, they got down, and Philip baptized the eunuch. Why? Because he fulfilled the condition. The eunuch proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ, And so he was baptized. This passage serves as the prominent example of what the entire New Testament teaches. That baptism is designated as a step of obedience and a willing act of association with the gospel of Jesus Christ following a profession. An infant cannot do that. right? He cannot volitionally choose to follow Jesus Christ. And so there is no biblical basis upon which for him to be baptized. Furthermore, infant baptism then lends itself to perhaps mudding of waters, a false confidence, making people feel that somehow they're right with God because they were baptized as an infant and so ushered into the church collective. It could, in fact, divert them from their true need to humble themselves before the gospel of Jesus Christ because they feel as though they've already fulfilled the qualification. Their parents did that for them when they were baptized as an infant. So, pastor, does that mean... Well, what does it mean? What does it mean for people who have been baptized as infants? Probably many of, of, of you all have, in that this is a Lutheran and Catholic area, and, and many people came from that background. Well, what it, what it means is it means that that infant baptism was spiritually meaningless as it relates to the actual spiritual concept of baptism. It may function... It, it doesn't mean it didn't have any sort of a reason... It can be a public demonstration of the parents' determination to raise their children. In many evangelical churches, uh, they'll have what's called a baby dedication. And in a baby dedication, the babies get up with their parents, and and parents hold the babies, and they pray over them, and they they, they say that they are going to dedicate themselves as parents to raising these children as unto the Lord, and the pastor gives them a little Bible that they can start to chew on. And that's the baby dedication, right? And it's cute, and it's fun, but but it's meaningful, right? It, it It is legitimately meaningful meaningful, that the parents and the church are dedicating that they are going to raise this child as unto the Lord. Well, if, if that's what the infant baptism is to someone, okay, fine. If, if you want to sprinkle your child with water as the means by which to affirm that you're going to do that, fine, as long as you don't think it's anything more than what it is, which it's for the parents 
to, to say the parents are determining something. It has nothing to do with the child. Now, again, historically, that's not what infant baptism has been. Historically, infant baptism has been the ushering into the covenant family of the church because the church believed that they were a covenant family like Israel that people could be ushered into through baptism as, Israel, as, as the people of Israel were ushered into it through circumcision. But we find biblically that that does not hold weight as it relates to the actual character of the church. It has no bearing upon your relationship to Jesus Christ except that it might serve to, you know, either be a dedication or to simply confuse the central truths of the gospel. It's a man-made tradition founded upon a set of theological principles, and that's about that. And this is why we see it, we, we don't practice it, and, and we can see it as a potentially dangerous practice. It fails to have any foundation in the Bible, and it can confuse, even give a false confidence, that people are right with God simply because of their infant baptism. So we baptize believers. We do not baptize unbelievers. And then second and finally, we baptize by immersion. Uh, the idea here is that we fully submerge a person in the water and bring them back out. We do not see sprinkling or pouring as sufficient um, replacements for this as a general rule when at all possible, and we do so on these grounds. First, the biblical record demonstrates that New Testament believers were baptized by immersion. We just saw it in the Ethiopian with the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, what hinders me? There's water here. And so they went down to the water and he baptized him. We see it with Jesus, that when he went to, be, when he went to submit himself to John's baptism, they did it in the River Jordan, and he came out of the water, the Bible says, seeing that he had gone under the water. And we know he went under the water because he came out of the water. And of course, the Greek word baptized, baptizo as well, also literally means to immerse. So uh, we see these things. Unquestionably, baptism was done by immersion. No instance do we find in Scripture where it was done any other way. And this makes sense because the other reason why we do it this way is because of the metaphor. Buried with him by baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. There's not a whole lot of a burial picture happening if water's sprinkling on your face. Even if it's being poured over your head. But if you're going under the water and you're coming back out, you are fulfilling a representative picture of being buried, thus engulfed, and then being brought out from that grave, right? It's a picture of death and resurrection. The symbolism is utterly lost with these other methods. And there's nothing about being sprinkled with water that in any way parallels death, burial, resurrection, or pouring, or anything of the sort. So we baptize by immersion because that's what the Bible teaches, what it intends, and it fulfills the metaphor. Now, does this mean that this can never be modified? No. person's on their deathbed. They've accepted Christ. They desperately desire to be baptized. This is a tradition, right? We've already said it doesn't have any spiritual efficacy to it. We don't want to mar the tradition, and we should not allow exceptions to define rules. But if a person is on their deathbed, they've accepted Christ, and they want to get baptized, and they can't be moved, well, do what you need to do, right? Allow them to go through the process of publicly associating themselves with Jesus Christ. That's okay, my opinion, I suppose. I think, I think that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it in my opinion. Others may disagree, and that's fine. But... 
because we see this as an ordinance, as a tradition, as something which is established as a symbolic representation, we recognize it is not spiritually efficacious unto an end. It is there as a public declaration. We recognize that there can be flexibility for the needs of God's people in, in these regards. And we understand that to be true. So we've covered much ground today. Four points of teaching to help us orient our hearts and our minds around the ordinance of baptism, to understand and to reorient ourselves to what it is and why we do it. It's well-founded biblically. It's a command of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an important step in a believer's spiritual walk. I hope it's become evident in our study that it's important to the church, that it's not something that we should take lightly nor let go lightly. And as I've preached on this today... We, of course, will have a couple of baptisms here after, after the service, and yet it's important to remember that this opportunity is there for all who will publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ. So a couple of questions as we close. First, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? We walked through the gospel in passing today that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, that he was buried that he rose again the third day. We've sung songs about it, amazing grace, only a sinner saved by grace. You are a sinner. Because you are a sinner, you have been separated from God. You cannot bring yourself back into a right relationship with God. You are already guilty. You already deserve to be punished. And the punishment that God has proclaimed is eternity in a place of separation from him called the lake of fire. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 this morning, for by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When we saw the word repentance connected to anything uh, related to salvation, it was that idea. Repent of your dead works and put your faith in God. If you realize today that you've been trusting in something else to get yourself to heaven, you've been trying really hard, you've been trusting your good works, you've, been, uh, you, you, you've connected yourself to Christian thinking or to Christian ideas or to Christian morality, and you say, I do really good things, I'm a good person, look down the street at my neighbors, I'm a whole lot better than they are. I try to obey the Bible. I try to follow the Ten Commandments. Uh, all of our righteousness, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, are as unclean things, are uh, as filthy rags. We are all as an unclean thing. You are not and cannot be good enough to get yourself to heaven, to make yourself right with God. It doesn't matter whether you've been baptized. It doesn't matter whether you attend church. Those are not the things. When you stand before God, those are not the things that will be the qualification. I ask people a lot of times when I'm, when I'm trying to dig down to whether or not they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, especially when I'm at the jail, I'll ask the questions um, about, uh, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And sometimes they'll say yes, and sometimes they'll say no. And if they say yes, it's not enough, right? Because how do you know? And they start going through the, the, the things that are manifestations in their lives. Well, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And when they give me those answers, the next question is, okay, the next question is this. When you stand before God, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? And I ask that to you today. And if to this point in your life, your, your answer has been anything other than because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, he was buried and he rose again the third day, he paid for my sin, he paid for my, my forgiveness, and I have accepted that gift, I have accepted that, 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 that um, death for me, well, then that's the wrong answer. 
Because that is the gospel. There's no way outside of Christ that anyone can be right with God because Jesus earned that place. Jesus paid that debt. Jesus alone. You can't do it. I can't do it for you. I've got my own sin to, 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 to deal with. I can't deal with your sin. You've got your own sin to deal with. You can't deal with my sin. But Jesus didn't have his own sin to deal with, and he dealt with all of our sin. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you been saved today? If you haven't, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Do it today. Do it now. Second, have you been baptized? If you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you've not followed the Lord in believer's baptism, why? Is there a reason that you've not followed the tradition of the, the church, that you've not followed the public profession, the, the command of Jesus Christ to allow us to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and teach you to observe all things that He has commanded us? What hinders you to be baptized? If it is not your faith, the eunuch said, what hinders me? Philip said, do you believe with all your heart? He said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, let's do this then. What hinders you? If you need to be baptized, come talk with me. We'll talk through it. We'll get it on the calendar so that you too can make that public profession of faith, that step of obedience, and move forward into that next step of your Christian life. And may God help us. The reason why we spent the time to learn about it today is so that we can understand what it is that's happening, but also so that we can maintain our roots in a determination that we do things the way God has asked us to do them. We stay connected to the, 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 the teachings of the Word of God, and we don't vary from them where He has commanded us otherwise. And by God's grace, we do that in baptism as we strive to do that in everything. We're not perfect. We do what we do because we believe it's right, but we're, we know we're not right about everything, right? Uh, we don't have a corner of the market as it relates to biblical Christianity. But by God's grace, when we read things in the Word of God, we formulate from it principles, convictions, and then we walk by them. And that includes baptism. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.